And so now, before going to worship, let's go into scripture reading. The scripture reading is found in a very awesome verse, A234. All right, Acts chapter 2, verse 3 to 4. Acts chapter 2, verse 3 to 4. And it's, it aligns with a recent uh, day of uh, the Pentecost. Right? Uh, some, many churches celebrate the day of Pentecost. Uh, and this is the, the, the day they're pointing back toward, right? The first event that happened in the books of Acts, chapter 2, verse 3 to 4. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Right? It's an amazing experience where they, they saw the Spirit come down and people received like tongues of fire. Seems to be a, a very common usage of fire to link with God. Shall we bow our heads for a word of prayer before I start? Father God, I pray for the Spirit to work with us. And we know, we thank you, that Lord, that God, you are omnipresent. That we do not have to physically gather in this church building for you to work in our hearts. That Lord, no matter where we are in Singapore, no matter where we are in the world, which I know that some of us are, your spirit is there with us. And Lord, as we gather in these various spots, your spirit is working with us, burning within us, and you are seeking to light up the area that we are in. And as we, Father, listen to your word today, as you speak through me, Father, use me, Lord, and may I disappear. May you communicate clearly the words you have to speak to your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Title for my sermon today is Overflow. Overflow. Have you heard of the term VUCA? Not vodka. VUCA. Right, VUCA is a term that's used to describe our current state of existence. Uh, as, a, as a society, as a world, uh, those of you who are in IT, you know this term, I think. It, it means the situation or the environment we are in is volatile, uncertain, it's complex and ambiguous. Those of you who are in IT, who does agile project management, very familiar with this term, but it's applicable outside of the technology world to our current society. The world we are in is so volatile that things change so rapidly, suddenly we are doing one thing and we have to switch to another mode of operation, almost like with a day's notice. That's what happened to church, right? We're gathering in the hundreds one Sabbath. Next thing you know, back to online. We have to adapt. And there's a lot of things that's uncertain. You know, uncertain, although there's a, a level of guarantee, a, a level of affirmation that this is going to be, what's going to be the case, what's going to happen. Last year, last year, December, I was thinking, you know, by June 2021, things will improve and my, my wife and I, my kid, can finally fly home to Taiwan to visit our family. Nope, not going to happen. Don't know when that's going to happen, all right? Uh, some of you who are thinking, you know, well, the vaccination should protect me from getting infected. Nope, you still get infected, but you don't get sick. That's still good news, all right? It's still good news. We're in a really uncertain world, a very complex world, because this complexity adds to the uncertainty and volatility, because you're not sure what to expect. You're not sure what's happening. You have no control over things. As I shared last Sabbath, it seems as though God has lost control. And finally, it's ambiguous. Things are vague. You get information thrown at you from all angles, all degree. And it's true. Like, nobody has a full monopoly on truth. But it's strange to me that people are 
are seeking to listen to the voice that is so unique that they may be the only ones saying those things. And because they're the only one, you think that's true. You, you tend to side with the alternative voice, and because they're unique, they will be true. It's almost like an Adventist DNA thing. If we're the only ones saying it is correct. Many times, that's not true. Sometimes it's true. Many times it's not true. So be careful. Be careful, all right? Be careful. I'm not saying that it's always going to be wrong, but, I'm not saying it's, but I don't think it's always going to be right either. So check your facts. And that's why I think God did not create us to be an individual. From the get-go in the creation of Adam and Eve, He created us as community. Note that when Adam was created, even then, Adam was not alone because he has God. God was with him. We were never supposed to think through things, process things, live life as one singular individual. We're always supposed to be in a community of faith. That's what will keep us safe and accountable and accurate. So VUCA, right? So VUCA is in a stage where it drains people. It, it just drains everything out of you. It drains the energy out of you. It drains like, you know, I, I was doing home-based learning for a little bit, and I, I was like, this is so rough. And suddenly I'm like, I feel so bad for those secondary school students, for those poly students. Primary school, I'm like, oh, man, you guys. And then I suddenly realized, you know, I'm an adult, and I, I'm, I'm finding it hard to concentrate. Imagine the primary school kids, and imagine the parents. Like, I'm praying for you, man. I'm so glad. I'm sure you're so glad it's holiday. It's hard. I know it's hard. You know, I'm praying for you. As a church, I want to support you. If you need somebody to rent and talk about home-based learning, just call me. I'll listen. I, I, I think I understand a little bit more now. So it's draining. It's draining. It's hard. And so an author I've been reading at the beginning of the pandemic, Adam Grant, he, he went on, and this author is awesome, his book is awesome, and he went on to write an article for New York Times. And he created this word, or he coined it, he didn't create it, he just, he just dug it out of the dictionary. Right? It was always been there, he dug it out, and, and it became such a buzzword recently, it's called languishing. Languishing. Languishing is the state of existence where you're not like depressed, you're not like the end of the world, everything's grey, but you're definitely not thriving, excited about life, like having fun, enjoying it. And that's, that, that term, you know, you know, 10 years ago, we, we have a word, it's like, bleh. You're just being, bleh. It's like eating food that the chef or the cook forget to add salt. It looks awesome, beautiful. The colors are there, and then and it looks really fresh, and you take a bite, and there's like no taste, and you go, ugh. That's languishing. That's a state that a lot of us are in. We're not like depressed. We don't, want, we don't feel that we're there, but we're not thriving. And then we're just like floating along, living life, having no expectation of tomorrow. We wake up. I'm going to stay in my room for class anyway. I'm going to have lunch in my room. I'm going like, to go to class again after class, after the lunch, and I'm going to have dinner by myself in the room again. I'm not talking about you, Daniel. <laughs> I'm not talking about you. <laughs> Suddenly just struck me. It sounds like you. It's not. It's like a lot of us are doing that. A lot of us are doing that. <laughs> John, I'm not talking about you there. It's like a lot of us are existing in that state where it's just like... Mm. In fact, the Bible talks about it. In Revelation, it, it describes the church. The church will come into a state of existence. And mind you, the church is not made of the building. The building is languishing forever. It's uh, dead blocks of cement. It will not thrive. It just, it's a building. It's dead. 
It's the people who make up the church, and it describes the church in Revelation that we will get to a stage where we are lukewarm. It's just like, blah. Where the church is not being persecuted, it's not suffering really, but it is not bringing life to wherever they go. Because we ourselves, as the church, we are struggling, struggling to get out of our languishing. We are lukewarm, we're neither hot or cold, that the Bible describes that God will spit us out because it's just so blah. You know what's really blah? It's like soft drink that is warm. So we went hiking one time in Hong Kong. There's a lot of uh, mountains near this, the place where I live in, in Clearwater Bay. And uh, it's a practice that uh, more, very often, after Sabbath worship, we go home, eat lunch, rest for a little bit, and then we'll go hiking, especially in the winter where the weather is nice. I miss winter. And then you go out and you go hiking. And, and then well, sometimes the students will live in the college that don't go home, right? They don't go home on a weekend, just stay there for a weekend. And we would say, hey, let's go together. And some of them have not hiked before, right? They have not hiked before. And uh, so we're like, hey, bring water, bring, bring a drink, right? Bring a drink so that, you know, you get, you get thirsty because it's winter, it's dry, you're climbing, you're tired, you need water. And then we'll climb and some smart aleck will bring like a, a 1.5 liter of a soft drink, frozen cold. And we're like, dude, two hours later, it's not going to be cold. Like, it's winter, it should be fine. I'm like, let's see. Well, we found a way around it actually, but... The, the guy didn't do that, right? The, the way to get around it is to really freeze it rock hard. But if you freeze it rock hard, it takes the fizziness out of the drink. So it's still not awesome, right? So we've tried. It doesn't work. So, so, so like, he brought, like, <laughs> I took out the bottle. I'm like, dude, why you bring that? Bring water. And he's like, no, I, I hate drinking water. I'm like, two hours into this hike, my water will taste better than your soft drink. And he's like, no, never. I like, well, let's see. So two hours into the hike, we're up in the mountain after a long while. We, we took a break, and then we took out the water to drink. And you could hear him just go, Bleh! And the drink was warm because he was in his backpack. He had his jacket inside because it was hot. He took out his jacket and put it in the backpack. So back, the jacket wrapped around the drink, and it got to, like, warm, soft drink. is just yuck. Am I refreshing? Not very cold, not very hot, warm, but it's, it's water. It's not sweet. Drank it, and I said, have a drink. Mine tastes sweet, I tell you. And after drinking his black drink, he drank my water. He said, how is that your water tastes better? Because it's, it's natural. It's good. So languishing is a state of existing where things are just blah. Things doesn't excite you anymore. And you have no energy to move on. Maybe it doesn't even need a COVID to, to remind us that we already did that. But the COVID really brought it to our face, that we are existing in the state of languishing, that we're existing in a state where everything's just so blah. Has your Christian life become blah? Are you languishing along? How long have you been languishing in your faith that you've not felt excited, passionate about your faith for a while? And a key concept of languishing is there's a lack of power, especially for Christians. There's a lack of excitement about what we're doing, that life and church has just become routine. It's become a thing you do just because you've been doing it. You don't even really understand why. Or you like, you do it because if you don't do it, you feel uncomfortable, but you don't, don't get anything really that excites you and empowers you from it. There's a lack of power. 
And so today, I'm going to the story that I, I stopped halfway last week. I talked about Saul, right? And then he, he received healing. His, his sight was regained. What happened to him? What happened to him? Listen to Acts chapter 9, verse 18 to 22. Acts chapter 9, verse 18 to 22. Reading from the ESV version, Acts chapter 9, verse 20, 18 to 22 says, And immediately, this after the healing, Something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Paul saw. Then he rose. The first thing Saul did after being healed, he rose and was baptized. Important. And taking food, he was strengthened. He got baptized. Mind you, he got baptized before he ate food. And by the way, he has not eaten for three days. Like, Life and death, survival, kind of like hunger, the stomach's eating itself kind of feeling. He's like, that's not important. Getting baptized, renewing my relationship with God, being born again in Christ was more important to him because he realized why. I'll talk about it later. Verse 19, carry on. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring, down, bound, bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was Christ. What? A 180 conversion. And it excites me. It's easy to go like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was converted. He became Paul and he's really powerful. And he wrote three quarters of the New Testament. All right. But did you notice that this is the guy that's a real person? It's easy to read the Bible, read the character of the Bible, as though we're reading a fairy tale and go, yeah, that happened. Awesome. Great. Nice story. No, it's a real person who went through a real experience and resulted in real consequences. If not for, for Saul, Paul, you and I today will be reading a very different New Testament, and we may not even hear the gospel very much. Because his job, he's been called to reach the Gentiles, you and me. He was like the, the one that got propelled, who challenged the disciples when they were reluctant to remind him of what Jesus said and demonstrated in his life to reach those who are non-Jews. God chose somebody from the other side to work for him. And here you see, it's easy, right? It's easy when you kill a general from the enemy in a war, you just kill the general and you, you, you kind of like make them suffer a little a bit, but they don't really suffer a lot unless he's like the main guy. But it's even worse for the enemy when you recruit their general to be on your side. And that's what Jesus did. He's so clever as a tactician, strategist. But I think it's more because he loved us and he loved Paul so much that he cannot allow such a, such a talented man to keep working for the wrong side. And when he converted him, right, this is the kind of thing that he is not languishing. If there's anything you would use to describe Paul, he's not somebody who is not passionate about stuff. When he's passionate about persecuting Christians, he went all out. And when he's passionate for Jesus, he went all out. So much to the point that he almost got killed. It is not an easy feat 
to anoint a whole city. You can annoy your friends, you can annoy your classmates, your family, your relatives, even your neighbors. But it's like amazing when you can annoy a whole city. Try, try taking off the whole of Singapore. Today it's a bit easier. You can do that by being very stupid on social media. But they won't go to the point where they try to kill you. So, so Paul was like, he's so good at annoying people, confronting the wrong, that he spoke out so strongly that a whole city want to kill him. Like, that's amazing. Right? He's influential no matter what. But how did he experience that? For those of us who are languishing, how did he have that passion? How did he have that energy and power? You know, I hear stories from people that always talk about two groups of people in the church. They talk about the people who grew up in the church, and they talk about people who were converted as a first generation. There's always this like, oh, I wish I was a first generation convert. I'm like, why? Because you see, they're always so passionate. It's as though you're cursed if you're born into the church. You're cursed if you grew up in the church, that you would not have a passionate relationship with Jesus. I want to speak to you guys. First of all, that is not true. I'm a fourth generation. Of course, I, I went through a stage where I was languishing, where I, I just like went to church just because. But it's not a curse. In fact, today, as I reflect back on my life, it's a blessing because James is so stubborn. He will know that he's wrong and yet, yet still try to fight for the wrong side because he doesn't like being wrong. And God knew. And God like, dude, if I don't put him in a Christian family growing up, it's going to be hard. He's going to be like so stubborn that even when truth has been revealed to him, he will harden his heart like a pharaoh. So God's like, no, no, no. I'm going to get in on you early. I'm going to strike you when you're young, when you're palatable, when you're malleable, when you're soft and you have no choice. You have to listen. I'll, I'll saturate your mind with the words of God that when you start rebelling against me, those words will keep reminding you that you can't stop it from speaking to your heart. Of course, many of us who grew up in the church will go on and, and not have this awesome experience of being an awesome sinner and then getting saved by Jesus. Why is that good anyway? Why must you experience bad so that you can experience good? Why can't you experience good and better and best? You cannot like experience death and then experience life. You'll be dead. You just remain dead. You don't have to because I hear that. The pastor, I wish, you know, I wish I were this rebellious child that could experience Jesus' convincing, converting power. I like, sometimes you just don't come back. Is that worth, worth it? You do not need, I want to share with you today, you do not need to have that experience in order to experience the powerful work of God. But, the first generation do give us an experience, an example we can learn from. We can learn from. So, Paul is kind of like a hybrid. He's like a bit of both. He kind of grew up in the church, if you can say, right? He's a Jew, he's a Pharisee. He's like the, 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 the best version. He's like the good PK who never left church, who always go to Crater Row and primary and junior class and recite his Bible verse and get all the stars. And then he's on stage giving special music. He's the guy who, who learned piano and violin and something else. And then he can sing really well. And then he can, he can preach when he's 10 years old. And then he's like, memorize the Bible when he's 15 years old. And then he's like, teaching Sabbath school class when he's 16 years old. And then he's like, you know, everything. Right? He's like, ordained elder at 21 or something. You know? like, he's like that guy. Haven't met one yet. 
And then he experienced Jesus. And he goes, dude, I've been a part of church, but I have not been the church. You know that's languishing? Languishing is when you become a brick in the church. We come to church just as part of the infrastructure, but you're not celebrating this relationship with God. And that's why the first generation give us an example, because for them, they realized that they were brought out of something that's meaningless, lifeless, and then they realized they're given life. And this life is promised to the entire humanity, not just for somebody who has sinned. In fact, all of us have sinned. Scripture says, but we sin differently. Somebody sinned outwardly, obviously, in actions and act, addictions. But some of us sin inwardly when we despise, we're proud, we, we reject God's hands reaching out to us. We reject God's call to do more for Him. That's sinning too. And some of us sin, we rebel quietly, suddenly, when in church, we come to church, and in my mind, we just shut ourselves out from God. We say, Dad, I don't listen to you. That's sinning too. All of us are sinning. So if you want to experience conversion, admit, first of all, admit that you're sinning. Confront the sin and say, God, I want to get rid of that. Doesn't matter your first generation, second generation, third, fourth, fifth. All of us can experience this power from God. Paul saw immediately the scales from his eyes fell. So maybe that's what's happened. That we have lived life with scales over our eyes that we couldn't see clearly our state of existence. That's a church. We think we're okay. That's the part of languishing. You think you're okay. Because you're not like bad enough where you're so obvious that you're not okay but actually you're not in the place where you're supposed to be. But you think this is okay. This is not okay. God did not design or create human beings to languish, to just go through life. No, that's not ideal. And anything less than ideal is not the design. It is not okay. Today, if you don't hear anything, here I'm telling you, it's not okay to exist in this state of languishing. Life, Christian walk with God, not okay. If you're there, it is not just, I'm getting through. I'm not evil. That's okay. No, it's not okay. It's not okay. Don't stay there. It's awful. Get out of it. Get out of it. Receive power. We were called to live powerful life as a Christian in various ways. Be powerful. Don't languish. Don't be, don't settle. Don't settle. Thrive for more. And immediately, so some of us, some of us have to go through the stage where we recognize that I've been languishing, that the life I live is not alive, it's dead. That's why baptism is important. See, baptism is not a, a judgment of now you're awesome. See, Saul has not done anything good just yet. He has not lived as a Christian in its way that he's, he's loving, caring. No, he's done none of that. Three days ago, he was trying to kill people. Murder, justifying it with a letter from the Pharisees, from the leaders of the, the temple, to kill people, justifying, rationalizing murder. Three days ago. He has not done anything to earn the right to be baptized in our modern sense of understanding. Nothing. But he recognized. He recognized, he realized that I'm going to live a new life. I now know Jesus. Personally. Relationally. I now have the scales off my eyes where I now see Jesus as who He really is. Maybe some of us have grew up in the church. We know the name Jesus. We hear it. We memorize the verses, John 3, 16. But we have not 
recognize and seeing clearly that Jesus is Christ. Not a Christ for just general sense, for, for somebody out there, for the church in general. No, it's, it's His Christ, His Messiah, He's a Savior for you personally. You see your personal Savior. See, you cannot see Him as a Savior unless you realize that you need saving. And maybe He needs to save us from languishing. He was baptized. He committed to a new life. Some of you have been in church. You have not been baptized because maybe you have a wrong perception of baptism as a seal, an affirmation of awesome Christian walk with Jesus. No, that's not it. That's not what baptism is about. It is the, 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 the acknowledgement of now I start the journey. Now I'm willing to be born as a baby to start to walk this walk, to learn how to not pee on the bed, to learn how, no, how to throw on my dad, to learn how to speak my first word, to learn how to walk my first step, to ride my first bicycle. You know, people think that it's awful, like, oh, I feel so bad, man, I threw out on the bed. I don't think Lucas thinks that. He doesn't understand that. But am I... Glad he's overcome it, yes, as a father, yes, I'm glad. But I enjoy the process of seeing my son learn. When, I, when, I, when we first got his balance bike, you know, those of you who don't know what it is, really cool thing that you, you, know, you guys who are older have no experience. You have that bike with the three balance wheel, two balance wheel, old school, right? Nowadays, it just goes straight up, two wheels, no pedals, balance bike. First went out, Lucas was really scared. He didn't dare to go very far from me. He was walking like really awkwardly like a penguin. And I'd say, be free, my son. Just go. He wouldn't. He was like, nowadays, Lucas, wait. Stop, Lucas. Don't get. He, he does stuff that scares me, right? He does it on purpose, I swear. Like he go to a wall, last minute, and my heart stops. And he go into like the auntie riding towards him. He like, he'll scare people to death. The auntie's like, and he go, and then the auntie's like, stop. I said, sorry, 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 sorry. My son has a thing for adrenaline. He didn't get there overnight, but he got there and he's just uh, riding his balance bike, swing around corners, going so fast, going down slopes, lifting his legs, go, I'm like, oh my goodness. All right, and then just like, takes time to get there, but he needs to start somewhere. The Bible says for the Christian walk to start is to be born, and that's baptism. So some of us who are still holding back baptism thinking it's just a ceremony. Yes, it's a ceremony, but it's also a decision, an attitude, an inward commitment to something greater. Paul was baptized. Wasn't good enough, but he got baptized. He was not, he has not overcome all his sin yet because you would notice later on that his pride and his ego still comes out. So there are people who say, Pastor, he shouldn't get baptized, she shouldn't get baptized because he's doing so and so. I'm like, dude, do you like check whether people are proud before they get baptized? Do you check people are greedy? Are covered? They are still coveting stuff? Are they jealous? Are they hating people? Do you not baptize somebody because they are angry all the time? No, because you can't see it. We're so inconsistent as a church. Not as that, but as church in general. We should judge them the way God judged when they say, yes, I'm committed. Let's baptize them and let's work with them through this. Not say you're not good enough to be a part of us. To realize that we are all not good enough. Jesus made us all good enough. And immediately, dude, this is where it goes, right? So for some days, he was with the disciples. He took time, recovered, ate food, scales fell, baptized. 
immediately after spending days, right, the disciples kind of like, dude, you know, this, dude, this is like the guy who tried to kill us, but like, I love you now. But Ananias like, dude, you know, like, this is really awkward. Went through that little journey with him, and then immediately he's like, guys, I can't hold it back anymore. He goes to the synagogue. Sounds familiar. Jesus does that, right? He goes to the synagogue, the temple, the church, where he, was, he used to be there to arrest people. Now he's on the other side, and he's proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God. Not all of us have to be preachers. I wish all of us are. Then every week I'll hear from you guys. It'll be such an awesome experience. I get sick of my own voice. In fact, I hate it when I hear my voice recorded. It sounds nothing like how I hear myself. I sound better inside. There's more echo, lower. Anyway. He was proclaiming he's the son of God because he's sharing the little bit that he knows. He has not gone through a Bible study. In fact, you go on to see that he spent three years to catch up. He took time away. But even before that, he shared what he could. He shared his story. And what was his story? His story is that I now realize one thing. First thing, Jesus is the Son of God. And he shared that. I'm going to share with you how. He explained how I know he's the Son of God. But he uses all his previous training. And that's where I want to share with you. God does not waste. God is into recycling. God would like to take the plastic bag of uh, garbage of your life that you've thrown away, renew it, make it something awesome. Make it into like a portable water bottle that holds cold water for 24 hours. God does not waste. Even if your previous life that you detest and you look at it and say, I want nothing to do with that life anymore, God says, I want to do something with that life. Whatever experience you've gone through that you may want to hide in a closet, God says, take it out. I want to use it. I want to use it to bless people. I want to use it to bless those who may be going through that specific, similar journey of yours and need to be encouraged that you can overcome. You are an example that's overcome. So Paul's previous training as a Pharisee, as a Sanhedrin, as a writer, all came back and God used it, now flip it. And the Bible continuously tells a story of that happening again and again. Moses was trained in the courts of the Egyptians and then God turned it around and he became the, the leader of the Exodus. Daniel was trained in the courts of the Babylonians and God turned it around and made him the premier of, of, of Babylon and in the, that blessed all the people in Babylon, the, the empire of Babylon. God is continuing. Joseph was trained in the courts of, again, Egypt. He was, he was tortured. He was in jail. He was in prison. He's an ex-con. And God used him to save Jacob and the 12 brothers. God does not waste. A lot of people look at Jesus' life and they go, why did he start his ministry only at 30 years old? Couldn't he have started earlier and do more? I think God was perfect in his plan that he should start at 30 and the 29 years before that was not wasted. It was in preparation of the ministry. Coincidentally, I started at 30 years old and, and that was part of my thing. I like Jesus started at 30. I know I was telling people I'm too old to switch career now. I'm too old to be a pastor, right? People start at 20. I'm like 30 and God says, no, Go. God, go back to studying, go back to school. I've not written an assignment and submitted a homework in 10 years. Yeah, yeah, go, go, go back to school. Oh, my first assignment was horrible. I didn't understand what it means to write a paper anymore. 
I didn't understand what it means to study for an exam. God says, do it. Do it. God does not waste. And the part of languishing is to, re- to think that whatever's done before is useless. Whatever's the future is, there's nothing in the future. But God also wants to feel you. Continuously, the Bible talks about God's presence being among His people through the temple. He fills the temple of His glory. In Exodus, when they were carrying a sanctuary around, there was a most holy place, and there was the seat of mercy where the Shekinah, the glory of God, sits with His people. And of course, outside of that, there's the pillar of fire, pillar of cloud that continuously symbolizes God's glory, filling His people. And continuously, the Bible tells us that this temple is supposed to bless everything around it, like it protected the Israelites in the Exodus. It also overflows and brings life to things around it. The Bible says that as the Israelites walked through the desert, neither the shoe tore the clothes. I'm like, is that possible for 40 years that you didn't have to change any shoes? That's good. But I don't think it's because they, were, they made good shoes as, as Israel, Israelites. Or today I don't see like a famous brand of shoes from a Jewish person that says, never destroyed shoes. If that, if given Jews, right, if they had that technology, they would sell it. They would make lots of money from it. Or they go bankrupt because they make one shoe, sell it one person, and in 40 years, nobody buys shoes anymore, right? Maybe that's why they're not selling it. Maybe they do know. Jewish friends, rabbis, friends of mine, share, right? But the glory of the temple, God's glory filling the temple overflows and brings life. In fact, in Ezekiel, Chapter 47, verse 1 and 9, it says that, Then he brought me back, Ezekiel, the prophet, to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing out. I like the word issue. From below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south and end the threshold of the threshold, the temple south of the altar. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many, very many fish, for this water goes there. That the waters of the sea, sea or seas, may become fresh, so that everything will live where the river goes. It was God's intention that as, as the temple is filled with life, as the temple is filled with the glory of God, that you will overflow and fill whatever's around it. See, the world is languishing because God's temple are not overflowing. We are languishing because we have not been filled by life itself, God, and so we can't bring life to our surrounding. The COVID has nothing on God. The restriction has nothing on God. The fact that we're only allowed to go out in twos, the fact that we have to stay indoors, should have nothing on God. In fact, I think He planned it. And so why did He plan it? Guys, ask Him to reveal to you. Use it. Use it. You know, there's a greater desire among people, especially even in Singapore, who are like really not talkative kind of people, for connection. And it's weird. Nowadays, if you are willing to talk, of course, safe distancing, mask, everything, if you're willing to talk, people are not more willing to talk because they haven't seen a human soul for, for days. And once you talk, they're like, yeah, they start sharing stuff as though you're their best friend even though you're seeing each other for the first time. It's a desire that's built out in people to connect and the church was asked to overflow. Oh, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? This glory of God is clearly stated as the Holy Spirit. 
In fact, whenever the Holy Spirit comes over somebody, the Bible's word for it is wearing a coat. It's like you're wearing a coat of the Holy Spirit. It's like you're just wearing this protective layer that, that, that empowers and then stretch beyond your ability. We always use this verse to describe how we should be healthy in our living. Health involves more just than physical and nutrition. I think it involves the mind. And I think a lot of us are languishing and that is not a healthy state of mind. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, you don't even need to eat an apple a day because Holy Spirit created the apple. He's God. I'm not saying don't eat apples, right? I love apples. But it's like God will empower you to flourish even beyond what you can imagine. So we need to, as a church, each and every one of us, to stop languishing, and the transformation has to start from us as individual Christians. The attitude, the posture must be changed, that we must be posturing from just living, surviving, existing, to receiving. Only by receiving the Holy Spirit into our lives will we be able to overflow. I actually planned for a very gimmicky illustration at this point, but I, I decided against it. I was going to put a cup here, and then I'm going like, to lay the floor with plastic and just pour water into it until it overflows everywhere. And then I'm like, it's too messy, man. I was going to do it till yesterday. Then I'm like, nah, it's too gimmicky. But you get what I'm saying, right? That if you put a cup there, and if all the cup does is just continue to be a cup, it's going to be empty. Even say if a half a cup of water, half full, it's going to evaporate and dry up eventually. You need to continuously be filled by God. The water has to continually be poured into it. So instead of just existing, you have the lid covered, you have to open up the lid and be in a posture of receiving glory of God. The Holy Spirit wants to be in your life. Pentecost wants to happen every single day. Do you want it? Do you want it? For those of you who are not baptized, it starts with that. For those of you who are baptized, go on to say that God says, now spend day prepared to receive because it's, it's not something that will come in the future. It's something that immediately you will receive and that reception was what's going to transform you. You don't have to transform in order to receive. You have to receive in order to transform. Saul received and therefore he was able to transform. We must move from being passive to actively wanting it. Instead of like, whenever God, whenever you're ready, let's do it. No, no, no. Because God, I want it. How often as Christians do we pray, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit today. Give me your Spirit for today and tomorrow you continually seek for it. It says, God, fill me and use me. See, one of the things is if you fill a cup of water and you keep, keep pouring, if you stop pouring, right, you stop receiving the water, if you leave it alone, it becomes stagnant and it creates my worst enemy, mosquitoes. I don't know why they exist. They shouldn't exist. God has a plan. I need to ask him about it. But mosquitoes are the most useless and annoying thing in the world. Especially those that go, hmm, why do you do that? Just bite me, right? Just take my blood. No, he has to go, hmm. It's like, I'm going to suck your blood. I'm going to suck your blood. Not yet. Coming soon. It's like, that's the most annoying creature. Be active. So if the water is stagnant, you breed mosquitoes. That's not what God wants His church to be. When we're languishing, we're like stagnant water. You breed harm. 
You need to be continuously filled by the Holy Spirit day after day, day after day, to keep the water fresh. Keep the water fresh. And you need to pour it out. You need to drink it. The water has to be used. If you're not using it, God can't fill it up. No, you, no point, right? Use whatever God's giving you. Ask for the Holy Spirit. Ask God to show you how to use it and then continue to allow Him to fill it up. So five steps. Five steps if you're stuck, stuck in this languishing mode of existence. Five things. Encounter Jesus. That's from Paul. He encountered Jesus, not by his own choice. God initiated it. And do know that God is initiating an encounter for us. We just have to take notice. See, when Paul saw the sun, he could have put on sunglasses. Hey, I'm cool. No, no, no. He, he confronted, he looked at it, he got blinded by it. Once you encounter, don't just go, all right, that's enough. Engage. Say, God, okay, what does this mean? I want more to my life than what it is now. Engage, entreat, pray, God, give. Give me your spirit. Fill me with your glory. Ask for it, and then, then know that God promises He will, and then experience it. Experience this awesome flourishing that comes from entreating a God who is faithful and wants to fill you up, then express. Paul didn't keep it to himself. He shared it. I look forward to the day where every week somebody says, Pastor James, may I have a few minutes of the time in the pulpit? I'm like, why? I want to share my testimony of what God did for my life this week. In fact, I hope that one day in the near future, every Sabbath, I'll invite somebody up onto the stage to share their witness, to share the testimony with you of real-life experience, of getting out of languishing to flourishing, from just, not just engaging and treating, but they experience and they express it. I want to do that. And I hope that I don't have to go and go, hey, would you be willing? No, no, no. You be calling me and maybe asking me for it that I have to like roster you because there's so many of you experiencing flourishing in your walk with God. They have so much to express. See, that's a, that's a check. If you have nothing to express, you know, a lot of people struggle with evangelism because they always say, Pastor, give me better tools. I don't know, no, you don't need better tools. You just need one story. You just need your story. And if you have that story, you'll be able to tell the story and that story is more powerful than any technique that I can tell you and share with you. When you have this experience, you'll be able to express, you can't help yourself, that Paul go as far as expressing himself, so much so, verse 22, but Paul, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by providing, proving that Jesus was Christ. It goes on, 23, 25, that so much so they have to secretly sneak him out of the city because he wouldn't leave. Encounter, engage. And treat, experience, express. The opposite of languishing, as Adam Grant shares it, right? he says the opposite is flourishing. It's blooming when the water becomes something that, that you use to bless the soil that these beautiful flowers can bloom and flourish out of you, pouring into it. God created the Garden of Eden as a garden, not just as a buffet for Adam and Eve, but also as a, I think as a metaphor for how he wants to see the world. It's a beautiful, flourishing garden. God wants to use you. God wants to use me. There's no one in Azdek's family, whether you're online, 
in person that God does not want to use. There's no one that God wants you to remain in languishing mode. He wants all of us to flourish. Everywhere we go, I like the slogan the government has uh, that Singapore is not a garden city, but a city in a garden. And if we claim that garden is the garden of God, that, that God wants Singapore to be a garden where the Christians are blessing everybody. Everywhere you go, you see the flowers blooming of goodness, of Christ-likeness, of lovingness everywhere in Singapore. Not just in church buildings, not just in Seven Night Thompson Road. But everywhere you go, you'll be a, you have the opportunity to encounter God through fellow Christians. I challenge your church, continue to flourish because languishing is no good, but it's not by your own strength to get out of it. The only thing you can do, allow God to pour into your life. Amen. us pray. Father Lord, I pray that all of us here and at home listening to this will embrace your promise to receive your glory, the Holy Spirit into our lives, that will flourish and pour out to plant gardens for you around the world, wherever we are, to bless the community we are in, to embrace the mission you've called us to do, to share the love of Christ, invite everyone to this relationship with you, 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.